Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast, where you're going to learn how to get seriously invested in your financial future and your financial uh, in retirement, in investing properly the way Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have been teaching the world for 50 years. And oh, are we are we definitely going to learn that? Is that <laughs> definitely what's going to happen here? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That might be what you're selling, but I don't know if I'm buying. <laughs> it's what I'm teaching. And, <laughs> you know, it's like when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And um, I know you're ready. And here I am. And the only problem I have is that I'm your dad. That's the problem. I mean, I get here more I crap. am, everyone. I'm here. I've been here the whole time. Why won't anyone listen to me? I mean, I get more crap from you about this than anyone has ever given me my whole life apart from you. Oh, well, my that gosh. just, I feel like you are a lucky person then because... You need someone to challenge you, right? You need someone to say that makes zero sense to everybody who's normal. Well, clearly that's true because God provided me with you. Exactly. My point exactly. <laughs> and honestly, doing this podcast with you for the last year has opened my eyes so much to um, to the, the difficulty of learning something this simple. And it truly is difficult to learn because there's not because it's hard to learn. I mean, like like we said last time, Charlie said there's four things. OK, it's basically all boils down to four things. How hard could it be to learn those four things? And and the, the problem, though, becomes one of emotion, what you call mindfulness, the practice, the commitment, um, the willingness to be patient, the willingness to not do anything. Um, it's so hard for people to recognize that the reason Charlie and Warren are so successful at this the reason Monash Prabhai is so successful and Guy Spear are so successful and people who follow this tradition, why so many of them are so incredibly successful is because they've taken to heart this criteria that, that Charlie has put forward there and then combined it with tremendous patience to wait until that company comes along that meets that criteria. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other reason is that you don't hear about the people who have failed. <laughs> you're so cruel. I'm sorry. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't help it. All right, I'm going to push back on. But this. you're right. But you're right. But all right, the I'm reason gonna, I'm going okay, to send ahead. you to the internet to look up a uh, a document. It's a PDF that war of a speech that Warren Buffett gave to Columbia, and I think roughly 1984. Google it. It's called The Investors of Graham and Doddsville. And, I've read it. Well, there you I go. Have, I have read it. Then you would recognize that Buffett addressed that problem. He said, we are going to look at every single one of the people that was taught by Ben Graham or myself or someone who learned from Ben Graham who has a publicly audited fund. And he took every one of them that he knew of. In other words, he, he made it really clear he was not excluding those people who failed. Yes, that's true. He was including everybody. He did, do, he did do this sort of study-ish thing. Yeah, including people that he taught at FMC and at Washington Post to manage those portfolios. Um, he included all those guys. And everybody was massively successful. 
So while I grant you that there are certainly people I feel like I need to who, look back at it. The answer was everybody was massively successful? Yeah, everybody. There was nobody who was moderately successful? No, not by the standards of the Okay, of I'm going to I'm going to look back and I will report to everybody next time. Look at like moderately successful would be like the market did 7% with dividends and he did 9%. That would be moderately yeah. successful. Yeah. I don't think there was a single person on there that was under 14% compounded for over 20 years. In other mm -hmm. words, double the market compounded rate of return. And what that means is that you know, you're doubling your money at 14% at per year, you're doubling your money um, at, at every five and a half years. You do that for 20 years, that's three and a half doubles or something. And a guy that's doubling his money every 10 years, because he's got 7%, is doubling twice. So you take $10,000, double it twice, you've got 40. 10 becomes 20, 20 becomes 40. If you double it three and a half times, you, 10 becomes 20, 40, 80, 120. So mm -hmm. one guy's got 40, the other guy's got 120. And that yeah, that's gap, a big difference. oh my gosh, that gap just keeps growing uh, larger and larger. So um, yeah, take a look at that and report back. I will report back on that one. Right, very good. So well, we've been talking about valuation. We have. And, and we uh, went through two of the four methods last time we sort of recapped them, which was the 10 cap valuation and the margin of safety analysis for intrinsic value valuation. Good. So with these two valuations, we have the 10 cap telling us we should buy this at 80 bucks and the uh, lemonade stand margin of safety analysis tells us we should try to buy it at 93, um, which would be a 50% discount to the sticker or real value of the business of 186. Now okay. we're going to take on another view of, of value that I wrote about in, in the book Payback Time. This is an analysis as if this business was a private business. Okay. Um, so we're obviously thinking of buying publicly traded companies. Right. Public companies tend to trade at a higher multiple than private companies because of the liquidity that public companies have. As in, depending on how big the market cap is, you can buy or sell that company at any given moment during the trading day. Right. Whereas private companies can be very difficult to buy or sell. Right, exactly. So the, the thought is once you buy a private company, that's it. You own it. Just like when you buy a house, you know, obviously there's times when you can flip the house, you can do all sorts of things to it. But housing would be much easier to sell, say, than a private business. Mm -hmm. you know, much more, much bigger market. Uh, much better lending available, all of that makes it more liquid. So think of a private business as much less liquid than buying a piece of, of real estate, say. So yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. significant. So um, this view of the world that says that public businesses are, are, are priced much higher than private businesses because of liquidity actually didn't just come out of a vacuum. It happens because Liquidity is especially important to people who are not going to do any due diligence on their companies, not going to really dig in, not going to really understand. Is this a business I'm capable of understanding? What they're going to do instead is buy a couple of hundred businesses, not really being capable of understanding any of them per se at a great deep level, um, because, you know, you, you, you take a genius in multiple lifetimes to understand that many businesses in that many industries. And mm. you're going to buy all these businesses and, and you, there's no way you can keep track of 200 businesses and all the industry. So they're going to buy them with the expectation that the good ones will offset the bad ones. 
But in fact, what they're doing is they're just shadowing the stock market. The Isn't stock that market, like classic value investing? Isn't that classic Ben Graham value investing? Well, you're right in one sense. Classic Ben Graham investing would be uh, taking place in a sort of depression market where you can buy 200 companies very, very deeply discounted to a normal market price. Yeah. But what they've done is they've taken that notion that you're buying these companies, um, you're buying 200 of them, what, what Graham and Buffett called cigar butts. You're picking up 200 cigar butts because a, at, a, at such a great price, they're virtually free, and some of them will have several puffs left in them, and those <laughs> that don't, that just go out, um, are offset massively by the ones that do. It's so gross. Yeah, it's <laughs> gross. And, and that, that, that applies nicely to Depression-era... Um, investing, but when you're in a non-depression area, when you're in a normal market, it's virtually impossible to find companies. And I'll show you that in a minute here at, at how deeply discounted these have to be. And okay. um, it's hard to find them and almost impossible to find one or two, much less 200. Um, so Buffett and Munger sort of changed the criteria over time from buying cigar butts to buying wonderful businesses that are at a fair price. And so the market, though, Mr. Market, trying to get things done as easily as possible with as low as risk as possible, concluded these that if you're a fund manager, you're far better off just following the ups and downs of the market or shadowing the market itself than trying to be heroic and make great rates of return. Because the uh, you don't have control of your capital as a fund manager like you would as an individual. Like, I have full control of my money, you have full control of your money. I can sit in cash for two or three years, but a fund manager can't. They must be investing all the time. And if they have to be investing all the time um, and they're trying to just find great companies all the time, they're going to fail because great companies are not available all the time. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they're going to buy companies that are cruddy and they're going to lose money. And that problem has, has worked its way through the industry. And now people solve that by simply diversifying extremely diversified across 200 different businesses and 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 shadowing the index all of which is fine i mean if, you, if you've got enough money to just shadow the index with an index you know or mutual funds that shadow the index that have low fees do so you, you don't need to be doing your own investing you don't need to be working this hard if you've got that much money that you're going to be able to live your life securely no matter what the ups and downs are with our, are the stock market and you're content <laughs> with a seven percent return because well, ultimately that sounds that. lovely, but that is not the situation. And that's not the situation for most people. Yeah, exactly. You know, so the amount of money you have to save, and I, I love the way you put it, you know, to become, you know, in a form of serfdom or slavery to a job to be able to retire. You know, you, you're not living your life today. You're, you're going to live it someday 30 or 40 years from now. And that, you know, people want to live today. So, yeah, I mean, I don't mean to say that, you know, any particular job is, is like serfdom or slavery, but it's just a sense of like, you have to have that income. And I would like to get to the point where I don't have to have that income, yep. where the income is optional. Yep. I think that's what we're trying to do here. So let's go ahead and turn to another form of valuation. This is the payback time analysis. Okay. This, payback time analysis. And the payback time analysis starts with knowing what the free cash flow is. And um, in this case, we know that free cash flow is $8 a share on 
our lemonade stand, okay? So um, we've got eight bucks to start with, and then we're gonna grow that at whatever the growth rate is that we've chosen for our margin of safety analysis. So we're gonna use the same growth rate. Now, in this case, it would be easy to get a little bit confused because the growth rate for free cash flow, um, historically with the lemonade stand, I believe, was 15% per year. And I'm the, looking back to see what on earth. Double check that, but I think yes. I'm right. Yeah, yeah, this is from our um, big four growth rate numbers. Right. Yeah, you're right. And we had free cash flow growth rate as 15% per year. But remember, we're arriving at a growth rate here looking at four different critical parts of the business the sort of top line sales growth rate, uh, top line because it's the top line of the income statement. Um, the earnings growth rate, which is the bottom line of the income statement, and the book value growth rate, which is sort of the bottom line of the, of the, the uh, equity, or, or rather the balance sheet, and then free cash flow, which is a, a line that we have to figure out ourselves off of the cash flow statement. So we're looking at this from four different numbers that are tracking different parts of the business. And what we want to see is a, a, a large collusion with these numbers. We want to see them kind of going the same way. And if they're not perfectly going the same way, and very rarely are they, then we're going to have to extrapolate a single number from these four that we're pretty comfortable with. And this, of are we course, doing? Are we doing the same thing we did with the earnings growth rate? Um, no, we're not. We're oh. we're going to do something a little different here. But oh. I just want to let you know. You know, you just got to make sure you're you're going to stick with that long term growth rate that we arrived at for earnings. Okay. What? What? Okay, when we when we did this, why? why wait, okay, so hold on. Did you just say that we're going to use the earnings growth rate now for the payback time analysis? No, sorry. Okay, we're going to use the long-term growth rate that we determined uh, for the margin of safety analysis. Yeah, which we called the earnings growth rate, even though it is not technically the actual earnings growth rate. There we go. So I just want to be sure we're on the same page. Oh, okay. So we are doing the same thing. That's which was that even though we had an earnings growth rate number, we didn't use... We need to come up with another name for this sort of estimated slash Let's chosen. call it future growth rate. Let's call it the windage growth rate. <laughs> You got it. This is now the windage growth rate. I'm putting that down. Because sometimes the wind just blows you in one direction or another. <laughs> it's... And you got four numbers. You got to pick one. It's not the average. It's just the way the wind blows. You've got your poor little lonely bullet sailing through the air being blown about on its way <laughs> to the target. So we're going to use the windage growth rate. I like this. We're going to now call it that. Okay, but um, here's my 15%. question. So our previous... Uh, what everyone has written down is their earnings growth rate that was estimated, but now our windage growth rate was, wait, what was it? 13%. 13%. 13%. Um, so we are using the same, that same number as we did before. Yes. We're like, we're not, we're not doing it all over again. We're not looking no. at the four growth rates and saying, should we pick a different number? We're just going to use the exact same number. Exactly. Okay. So, we're so gonna... use the windage growth rate. Of 13%. Yep. All right. So now we're going to make the assumption that free cash will grow along with the overall windage growth rate. And, and it's just going to grow at that level because we're comfortable that that's the level of growth for this company that we can justify, defend, and so on. So we're starting with $8 per share 
of lemonade stand free cash flow. And we're going to grow that at what percent per year? 13. Precisely. So now I've just created a little um, Excel document here that grows the $8 at 13% per year. So what I'm using, basically what I'm doing is I'm multiplying $8 times 113%. And that gets me my next cell. So if cell number three is $8, cell like F3 is $8, then the next cell down, cell F4, is $9.04. And then I'm just going to do that for every cell until I get eight new cells below $8. So I'm going to look at year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, year six, year seven, and year eight. And I'm going to grow that original $8 at 113% per year for each of these years. And I'm going to end up with a total number um, of these eight years of free cash flow. So I like that because I could do that without an Excel spreadsheet. You sure can. You just, just do it on your calculator. The new number at 13, the new number, at, you know, add it yeah. to the previous old number. And Why so, do you only have eight years? Well, because we have done... Because last time for the margin of safety analysis, we used 10 years. Right. Because this is a totally different thing here. Last, the, this is a different... <laughs> the answer is, this is different, Danielle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll tell you why it's different. This is an evaluation of the business, how much we're willing to pay out of our pocket, um, and how long we're willing to wait to get that money back. That's what this is all about. How long will it take me to get the money back that I paid for this business? And we're doing eight years because I don't want to wait longer than that. <laughs> I somehow I felt like that was coming. <laughs> yep. Now, that is not arbitrary. We've Nine done this experiment. Long. We've done this experiment many, 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 many times um, in class where I'll divide the, the workshop up into What's two groups. Oh, your workshop? Yeah. I'll divide us up into two groups. And not to give away the whole thing here, um, we get a similar answer virtually every time we do this about what the value is of the business that we have everybody uh, figure out. Because what we do is we have half of the class sell the business to the other half of the class. And I act as their broker. And what's the, do you want to just mention what the workshop is quickly? Okay, yeah. Okay, the, the, we're, we're doing this workshop once a month. Um, we used to charge a lot for it. And now we're letting all of our podcast people come for free. If you want to join us at the workshop, it's three straight days. By us, days. he means him. Yeah, I'm rarely there. Well, this is not the royal we. This is me and uh, my brother Jeff, my wife Melissa, her sister Michelle, and our whole team of coaches who volunteer to come in and teach you guys. People we've taught in the past. We'll end up with 30 coaches at this workshop and uh, to, to help when we break out into small groups for you guys to learn this stuff. And um, we teach for three straight days, Friday through Sunday. Um, you will do a lot of your work. You'll have homework. It's full blast. And we don't charge you for it. And um, there's no selling that goes on at the workshop. Swear to God. Danielle, would you confirm that for me? Because you went. That is accurate. Yep. I was surprised. Okay. So we don't even discuss anything else. It's 100% education. And, um, and by the way, midway through, we bring everybody out to our farm. And you guys can meet some of our horses and our staff out here and and we feed you a barbecue and just get to know everybody on a little more individual level and it's kind of fun so so we, how can people sign up 
Oh, how do people sign up? Um, go to investedpodcast.com and click on the link to the workshop and it will get you a scholarship and you sign up for the next one that you can attend. We try to do them once a month. We're not successful at doing them every single month, once a month. But because we limit the size of the class very rigorously to uh, about 250 people in the class so we can handle it with our coaches, um, they fill up and people come in from all over the world. So just be warned, um, you may not get the first class you apply for. Um, we'll just try to work you in if we can, but there is typically a waiting list about three to four weeks before the class starts. We typically start a wait list. Okay. So in that class, you do this thing where people sort of sell a business to the other half of the class and they end up with being, what is this eight years? It's like they end up being willing to hold the business for eight years before they get fully paid back. Well, I, I feel like I'm giving away the punchline here because I always like people to be able to go through this themselves. But you'll see. Well, you know, you don't have to. Much. You don't have to give away the punchline. I'm just. I'm thinking to myself, like through my, um, you know, M and A legal experience, like seven years is a pretty typical private company amount of time where you're looking at um, at earnings and how long it would take for you to get the money back that you spend on buying a business through the earnings. There it is, exactly. Um, it actually works out historically in venture capital to be about seven and a half years on average. And um, and that's why we target eight, round number, could be seven. I like seven better than eight, but eight's, <laughs> eight's very doable. Eight's reasonable. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't mind waiting uh, eight years. Um, obviously, any But nine is too long. Too long. No nine. Forget nine. I'm, I'm going to say that there's a there's a reason you might go nine. And even 10 is oh, possible. But I'm going to tell you why. Okay. Because if you have a growth rate built into this thing, like we do with, uh, with this company, um, sometimes the growth rate can, uh, can't, well, the growth rate is going to accelerate the amount of time it takes to get your money back compared to a company that doesn't have any growth. So if you're making $8 of free cash flow and there's no growth, in eight years, you would have $64 of cash. So you mm -hmm. could pay $64 for the business. But if it's growing, we can see that we actually grew first year at nine, we have $9 and four cents, the second year at 1022. And by the time you get to the eighth year, you're $21 coming in, you've virtually doubled the, uh, the amount of free cash flow that's coming. And as a result, your total free cash over that eight year period is $115. So because there's growth here, you can pay almost twice as much for the business. What am I missing here? We went from $8 to 21. Is that what you said? Yeah. Free cash that's, grew that's over that period than, of time. More than a double. You said oh, almost a double. I was thinking starting with the, with the first year at nine, um, it got more than a double. Yeah, oh, right. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So by the way, what we're looking at is the power of compounding uh, your money. And it's extraordinary what that can do. So point being that um, if a company has a tremendous amount of growth in it um, and there are some extenuating circumstances, I, I feel comfortable out to 10 years. And that's what I wrote it in payback time. But if we're just beginning at this, so let's just have some hard and fast rules. Let's have some strong boundaries. We're not going to buy something that's more than eight years. Okay. That I can accept that. Okay. And we like seven better. And six is even monstrously better. And five is insanely great. And four is off the chart, okay? So okay, just to put I'm, it in I'm writing down eight years and lower is better. Yep, yep. 
<laughs> seven is better. All right, so this gives us a payback time. We'd call it a payback time dash eight from free cash flow, meaning my payback time of eight years on this business is $115. Okay. Now, to just put this in perspective about how much better it is to get it in seven, we notice that we're going to subtract $21 here and a payback time dash seven on this business is 94 bucks. Uh, a big change down and very close to the number that we got on our margin of safety analysis. Whoa. Thus, you can see why seven becomes really sexy. Maybe you could describe the reason for that. Well, now we have two numbers that are coming in almost the same. And that looks really good to me. So I can see that I'm paying a little bit of uh, uh, above the margin of safety if I buy it with an eight-year payback time. I'm paying right at the margin of safety if I buy it with a seven-year payback time. Oh, okay. So what I was missing there is what these numbers are. $115 in eight years is... The, you're look, that's the price you would pay today. Because that's how long, share. that's how many years it'll take me to get my money back. I see. So lower is better here. Lower like we, we would rather pay $94 for yes. this. Yes, yes, yes. And if I could get it on a six year, then I would, again, I would just subtract what, you know, the six year was. So that's um, going to take off an additional 18 bucks. So because that's the amount of money made in, in year seven, right? So um, I would take 94 and subtract the year seven earnings. So now, if I could buy this with a six-year payback time, I'm paying $75 for it. And, and now I'm at a price that's even better than the 10 cap purchase price. Okay, it sounds to me like you're kind of saying things backwards. So what you wanna do is buy it for this amount of money and then it'll take six years to get your money back. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. If I buy it when for When you're buying a public company, what are you talking about to get your money back? Well, you're not I'm, gonna get your money back. I'm doing a theoretical thing here, right? Um, we're doing it theoretically that if we owned the entire business, this free cash flow would come into our pocket. We would have the choice as the owner of the business to reinvest it in the business. If the business could reinvest it and grow it really fast, that's great. Or I can take it out and just pay myself back the money. I got that choice. So I'm basically saying, theoretically, if this was a private business and I bought the whole thing, I could have my money back in eight years if I pay 115. I could have my money back in seven years if I paid 94. And I could have my money back in six years if I got the price down to 75 bucks a share. So it's theoretical when you're looking at a public company, except when it isn't. There are times when public companies are throwing off so much free cash flow that they are literally paying you that amount of money every year as a, in the form of a dividend um, that you're collecting plus buying back their stock, which also accrues to you, which we haven't talked much about. So we call this a distribution to shareholders where they're buying back a bunch of stock and, and giving you greater uh, ownership percentage in the company and they're handing out a dividend. And a company that's doing that right now is IBM. It's one of the reasons Warren Buffett likes the business is because they're throwing out 
their free cash flow is, let's say their free cash flow at IBM is $8 a share, they're paying out the entire $8 a share to shareholders. Really? Yeah. So that's pretty neat. I mean, when you when you can find a company that's a wonderful business by all the criteria that Charlie was saying, and its free cash flow is really actually going to your benefit, then you can end up with uh, the best of both worlds. It's as if you owned a private business and it was paying you. Okay. I'm I'm feeling a little stuck on the payback time analysis, just determining how you think about this as you're looking at a company. So what the what I think what you're saying is that this the free cash flow number every year that's going to come out on the accounting statements is going to keep going up. And as you hold that company that you purchased at let's say $115 a share, you expect the free cash flow number to keep going up every year and in 8 years you expect that free cash flow number to be what $115 $115 cumulative it's a cumulative number so the free cash flow is growing every year and every year we put that money in our pocket theoretically and so what we're looking at when we say $115 is the cumulative cash flow from that company from the time we bought it it's not the stock price and that's the price we're willing to pay for the stock. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. So they should be the same. They should be the same. Okay. Exactly. So it's cumulative free cash flow. And that's the price we want to pay for the company. And in a public company, it's theoretical. In a private company that you buy for yourself. And by the way, this is a really, really great way to figure out what you're willing to pay for a private business, for um a franchise that someone owns or for a laundromat or for a car wash, what would you buy that thing for? And one way to figure that out is to figure out what's the real free cash flow coming out of this thing over that period of time. And that is the cumulative number you, you would want to pay no more than would be about eight years of cumulative free cash flow. And of course, you're going to try to buy it for five years of cumulative free cash flow or three years of cumulative free cash flow. But understand, on the other side of this deal is a seller. And the seller is going to take a lump sum of money from you when you buy that car wash. And that amount has to be enough that they're willing to give up this free cash flow mm -hmm. for a certain number of years. So mm -hmm. if somebody's willing to sell you their car wash for two years of free cash flow, be very afraid. <laughs> there's because something you don't know there's something you don't know the lease runs out in two years um, and they're going to bulldoze it and you can't keep it anymore whatever it is there's something wrong with that because reasonable people are going to want to get about eight years or more of that cash flow in order to sell their business okay so when you're looking at publicly traded companies this is in intellectual exercise it is in order to make this valuation unless they provide dividends Unless they provide dividends and buybacks significant enough, enough distribution that it makes up this amount. And then it's not theoretical at all. It's real. Okay. And dividends and buybacks, by the way, we've gotten a number of questions about those from you guys who are listening and sending in questions, which is awesome. And I think we'll be talking about those more later, like after our strict valuation discussion. Yeah, we're going to dive into distributions 
dividends, buybacks, um, uh, share splits, um, spinoff companies. These are all in one form. Gosh, I didn't know about the other things we were going to talk about. Oh, yeah. I mean, a a real interesting one was just done by uh, Fiat Chrysler, which was uh, a, you know, the rebuilt old Chrysler company taken public by uh, by the Italian guys that bought it. And um, they spun off Ferrari. Really? Yeah, they took Ferrari, uh, the Ferrari automobile brand um, and manufacturing plants and all the intellectual property, along with the, uh, what's that other really beautiful Italian sports car? It starts with an M. Um, Maserati? Maserati. They own Maserati, and that was part of this other thing. And it's got a new stock symbol, R-A-C-E, race, is their <laughs> stock symbol. So I love it. If you owned Fiat Chrysler stock, before they did the split or before they spun off this new business, then you woke up one morning a few months ago and you own Fiat Chrysler stock and you own Ferrari. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be a really interesting thing. Like Sears has been spinning off companies like Land's End and Seritage and they, they spin these companies off, you know. And, and so um, you get the benefit of these spinoffs. And these are also a form of distribution to shareholders. So there, there's a lot of cool things that, that uh, we can talk about about distributions because those are important. And you can see that we look very seriously at theoretical distributions to figure out what value we think the company has to us as a private business. Um, and when we can get the best of both worlds, which is a public company with actual distributions that add up to its free cash flow, that becomes very, very interesting to us. Yeah. Yeah, okay. This is making more sense to me. Okay, bueno. Then we've got (laughs) one more real quick one um, that I want to cover and then we'll wrap up. Um, It's really quick? Yep, it's pretty quick. It's called the zombie value. Okay, zombie value. Zombie value. I just realized it's not that quick. I was just going to (laughs) say, I can't believe it's actually quick. I mean, the payback time one was like pretty quick, I thought. We, We talked about it in less than one episode. I don't even know what to do with myself. Well, let me tease zombie value a little bit like we're on uh, some TV show. Um, Zombie value is the value of the business as the living dead. That is, (laughs) that is the business is going to be valued by us. Although it's alive, we're going to value it as if it's dead. It's a dead business. Now, we we need it to be alive. We need it to be walking around. But we're going to pay a dead business price for it. And zombie what, value. What does dead business mean? Dead business it's means not growing. We're selling. No, worse than that. It's literally dead. We are going to sell off the assets. We are going to pay off the the liabilities, and whatever is left, we get to keep. It's oh. dead. I love how you came up with this whole like fancy name for zombie value and everything. Guess what, Dad? In the legal world, that's called winding up a company. <laughs> Well, how much more fun is it to say zombie it's way value? More fun. It's a lot more fun. I see why you did it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's what it's we're also, dig into. It also obfuscates what you're actually talking about. It does. It obfuscates it beautifully. Which is, which is just winding up a company, which yep. is similar to windage. In, it's know. another windage. I love windage, by the way. Windage is now permanent in rule one investing. Oh, windage is And you invented it. Well done. So let's uh, let's wrap up and let's come back to um, our zombie value next week. So until then, time to go play. 
Okay, sounds good. Bye, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.